Now celebrating our 23rd year of service to the amateur radio community around the world, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, your amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. This is edition number 1,211, with a release and air date of Saturday, May 14th, 2022. Please take the program to your air following the Q-Tone. It is time for another excursion through everything that is amateur radio. Now in our 23rd year of service to the amateur radio community, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. So let's jump in and take a look at the latest amateur radio news happening all around the world with edition number 1,211 of This Week in Amateur Radio. Shortwave radio outlets all around the world are resurrected and back on the air to beam news and information to the people of the Ukraine. The FCC has resolved all of its technical issues with the universal licensing system and is once again processing amateur applications. We will have more news on the upcoming Dayton Hamvention next week, including a new app that you can have on your mobile device to help navigate the show. The annual Armed Forces Day crossband test is being held this week on 60 meters. Amateurs are activated in Oklahoma to support cleanup efforts after local tornadoes. A tour boat operator in Japan is fined for using amateur radio for business communications. The DARC, the Deutsche Amateur Radio Club in Germany, receives a large grant to develop GSM and GPRS technology for use on the amateur bands. Amateurs in the southern United States prepare for what looks like another active hurricane season. And students at the University of Arizona ham it up on the roof of their campus engineering building. We will have that and a lot more in today's edition of This Week in Amateur Radio. These headline stories will come to you in a moment along with this week's special features. We'll visit with Bruce Page, KK5DO, and get an update from AMSAT and what's new with all of those amateur satellites in orbit. Our technology reporter, Leo Laporte, W6TWT, will talk about how difficult it is to unsubscribe or reach technical support at Alphabet, which is Google's parent company. He will also talk about the new Firefox 100 release, which actually has a functioning privacy switch, supported by new regulations about web tracking thanks to the European Union General Data Protection Regulation. Australia's own Arnold Benshop, VK6FLAB, will introduce you to Augustin Jean Fresnel, Zeppelins, and a picket fence, and what they collectively have to do with VHF and UHF signal propagation. Our own amateur radio historian, Bill Contadelli, W2XOY, returns with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives, this week, Bill takes us back in time to when he first got bit by the RF bug, which happened at a long-lost radio retailer in western New York, Olson Electronics. Our tower climbing and antenna master, Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, covers everything you need to know to install and maintain your tower and antenna installation for your station. This week, Greg covers the best methods for mounting electronics up on the tower. And... We will have the April report from Vance Martin, N3VEM, from Parks on the Air. That's all straight ahead as North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service, This Week in Amateur Radio, takes to the air right now. 
Reporting from our headquarters studio here in beautiful downtown Albany, New York, where we had summer this week, I'm George, W2XBS. And reporting from the newsroom in Half Moon, New York, I'm Terry Saunders, N1KIN. And reporting from our news bureau in Rochester, New York, along the southern shore of Lake Ontario, I'm Dave Wilson, WA2HOY. And reporting from our Troy, New York news bureau, where we went this week to almost full foliage, I'm Eric, KD2RJX. And from Studio One of our Central Florida News Bureau, where we're all still waiting for our first hurricane, I'm Fred, November Fox, 2 Fox. And reporting from our amateur radio station in the Catskill Mountains of upstate New York, where a week ago it was 25 degrees overnight, and yet the last two days it's been 90 degrees, I'm Don Hewlett, K2ATJ. And now with this week's lead story, here is Terry Saunders, N1KIN. Leading off our news this week, In a world of mobile phones, satellites, and the internet, some old-school technology used by spies for decades to send encrypted messages is making a major comeback. With a look at what is being used to get information through to the people of the Ukraine, we go to Steve Richards, G4HPE, who files this report through the Southgate News Service. Canada's CTV News reports that shortwave radio, used by spies for decades to send encrypted messages, is being resurrected for the war in Ukraine. According to Dr. Andrew Hammond, curator and historian at Washington, D.C.'s International Spy Museum, the shortwave radio is a classic tool that was used for espionage. He said that with a shortwave radio, you can transmit information over huge distances. But now, decades later... Shortwave is coming back into use. After Russia attacked communication towers in Ukraine, the BBC went old school, broadcasting their news service on shortwave frequencies to counter Russian propaganda about the war. John Figliozzi, a shortwave radio expert and author of the book The Worldwide Listening Guide, said that the BBC is using shortwave radio to transmit the news because it's a lot harder to block those transmissions. It's an old technology, but it works. Used in conflict zones, shortwave is less complicated than other communication avenues and travels further than TV or mobile phones. Radio waves are electromagnetic signals that can be broadcast and for others to tune into by tuning a radio to the correct frequency. Shortwave radios tune into a range of frequencies in the so-called high-frequency or HF bands. When shortwave transmissions are directed at an angle into the sky, they bounce off a layer of atoms in the atmosphere called the ionosphere, allowing them to travel beyond the horizon, much farther than other radio waves such as VHF that are limited by having to transmit in a straight line known as line of sight. Over the past few months, amateur radio hobbyists have used their shortwave receivers to pick up Russian soldiers openly discussing battle plans. Anti-war protesters have also used shortwave radio to troll the Russian military by blasting the Ukrainian national anthem at them or jamming their channels with annoying noises. You can watch the video and read the full story at www.ctvnews.ca. Head for the Science Tech section. While shortwave was used back in the First World War, it became more widespread in the Cold War era when the U.S. and the Soviet Union were highly invested in hearing each other's secret communications and hiding their own. Shortwave changed the way spies communicate, sending cryptic messages on so-called number stations, which were traced to governments all over the world. 
If you tuned in to one of these number stations at the right time, a mysterious monotone voice would read out what seemed to be random numbers. One of the ways to understand these transmissions was by using a cipher key called a one-time pad, which allowed the intended recipient to crack the code. And it's still used by modern-day Russian spies, including a husband and wife team who had been posing as Canadians for two decades and were arrested in Boston in 2010, inspiring the hit series The Americans. The shortwave radio was unbreakable, Hammond said, so you know that's a pretty powerful tool. But could shortwave make a difference in Ukraine? You know necessity is the mother of invention, right? said Figliozzi. If you need to get through, you're going to try anything. Sending signals and listening with a tool from the past is reborn. The FCC has resolved technical issues and resumes processing amateur radio license application. The AWRL Volunteer Examiner Coordinator reports the FCC Universal Licensing System electronic batch filing system is back online and is functioning normally. A message sent by the FCC Universal Licensing System electronic batch filing system team to volunteer examiner coordinators explains that the technical issues with the system are finally resolved and the VECs may resume submitting files containing amateur radio license applications. The ARRL VEC has submitted most of the backing of its files to applications processed on or after April 27th and expects to have them all of the backlog submitted this week. You are listening to North America's premier news and information service for the amateur radio hobbyist. We are This Week in Amateur Radio. The 2022 Dayton Hamvention, among the world's largest annual amateur radio gatherings, is ready to celebrate its 70th anniversary event on May 20th through the 22nd at the Greene County Fairgrounds and Expo Center in Xenia, Ohio. With more information on this year's Hamvention, we go to John Ross, KD8IDG, who files this report through the ARRL in Newington. Organizers report that brisk advanced sales of tickets and reservations for inside exhibit booths and flea market spaces are an indication that the Hamvention 2022 is headed for success. At the final planning meeting held on May 10th, committee members learned that 94% of the inside exhibits were already sold and more than 450 vendors had already claimed over 85% of the flea market spots. And adding to the interest this year is the largest prize ever offered in the history of Hamvention, an amateur radio dream station package worth almost $20,000. General Chairman Rick Allnett, WASG, thanked DX Engineering and ICOM America for that prize, which made them the platinum prize sponsors for Hamvention 2022. That prize package includes an ICOM IC7851HF and 50 MHz transceiver and an extensive list of station accessories. Alnut also acknowledged all of the other donors who contributed the many hourly prizes given out during the Hamvention. Other points made at that planning meeting included urging the use of the free ARRL events app for smartphones and tablets to help attendees navigate the large schedule of forums and meeting locations, the sprawling fairgrounds, and the multiple buildings that house hundreds of exhibits and related activities. Now, while a printed program will still be available, the app provides an easier way to access information. You can visit your app store to download the app. Just search ARRL events or via the following link www.tripbuildermedia.com 
forward slash APPS forward slash ARRL. A web version is also available. The ARRL app is offered in partnership with the Hamvention. And at the Hamvention, ARRL will host over a dozen booths in its large-scale exhibit area located in Building 2. The booths will be supported by an 80-person team comprised of ARRL board members, section managers, field organization volunteers, program representatives, and ARRL headquarters staff. Visit www.arrl.org forward slash expo for a complete summary of ARRL's participation at the 2022 Hamvention. The use of the Hamvention webpages was promoted to help locate parking areas, gates, and other relevant materials. It was also recommended that committee members and those attending also have an in-case-of-emergency card on their person, preferably on a lanyard around their neck. Hamvention will continue the policy of having free admission on Sunday. However, tickets are still required for entrance on Sunday and can be obtained at no cost at the ticket booth. Those tickets are for admission only and do not include a prize-drawing stub. Allnut thanked all committee members and asked them to pass on his thanks to all their volunteers. Dayton Hamvention includes hundreds of volunteers and is sponsored by the Dayton Amateur Radio Association. Included are exhibits supporting radio clubs, the ARRL Great Lakes Division, including the ARRL sections of Kentucky, Michigan, and Ohio, the Amateur Radio Emergency Service, ARRL Development and ARRL Foundation, ARRL Learning Center, ARRL Teachers Institute, ARRL Collegiate Amateur Radio Program, ARRL Volunteer Examiner Coordinator, ARRL Volunteer Monitor Program, ARRL Radio Sport and DXCC, and the ARRL Laboratory. The ARRL exhibit area is also host to a booth for the International Amateur Radio Union. Once again, you can visit www.arrl.org forward slash expo. That's www.arrl.org forward slash expo for a complete summary of ARRL's participation at 2022 Hamvention. The Dayton Hamvention is offering a free mobile app for smartphones and tablets to help attendees navigate the large-scale event, which runs May 20th through the 22nd at the Greene County Fairgrounds and Expo Center in Xenia, Ohio. The app, which was introduced in 2019, is offered in a collaborative effort with ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio. The free ARRL Events app is now available and already includes Hamvention's full program, so attendees can browse and schedule forums, find affiliated events, and preview the extensive list of exhibitors. During the event, attendees can use other app features to follow the hourly prize drawings populated by the Dayton Hamvention Prize Committee and browse buildings and sitemaps. Attendees are also encouraged to tap on the My Profile icon in the app to add their name and call sign, email address, and any additional information they would like to share with other Hamvention guests. Additionally, the My Badge icon displays a QR code of your event badge that can be scanned by another attendee or exhibitor using the Scan Badge icon, instantly connecting shared contact information with other hams at the event. The app is available for Apple and Android smart devices, or access the web browser version, which is optimized for nearly any browser or other type of mobile device. Visit your app store to download the app, search ARRL events, or access the links available on the ARRL Expo webpage. 
please email hamventionapp at awrl.org with any questions about the app. For more information, please visit these official websites. For Dayton Hamvention info, www.hamvention.org. For AWRL Expo at Dayton Hamvention info, www.awrl.org forward slash expo. Federal Communications Commission Enforcement Bureau Regional Director Lark Hadley, KA4A, will participate in an AWRL-sponsored forum at Dayton Hamvention on Saturday, May 21, 2022. With further details on featured speakers at the Hamvention Forum, we go to John Ross, KD8IDG, who files this report through the AWRL News. That forum, entitled Good Operators and the ARRL Volunteer Monitor Program, will be led by Riley Hollingsworth, K4ZDH, who heads the Volunteer Monitoring Program, a joint initiative between ARRL and the FCC to enhance compliance on radio spectrum allocated to the amateur radio service. Hadley is responsible for the FCC field offices in Region 3, which responds to enforcement issues involving wireless and broadcast interference in the western states, including Alaska, Hawaii, and the Pacific Island territories. Hollingsworth, who retired from the FCC in 2008 as the special counsel for the Spectrum Enforcement Division, works with ARRL's Corps of Volunteers to recognize exemplary good operator behavior on the air, while also deterring poor operating practices. The program will also refer well-documented instances of repeated violations to the FCC, such as unlicensed use of the amateur radio spectrum and deliberate interference and follow-up on the FCC request to the program. More information and a complete list of ARRL-sponsored forums at Dayton Hamvention is published at www.arrl.org forward slash expo. You are listening to This Week in Amateur Radio, available worldwide as a podcast from our web at www.twiar.net. According to the Washington Post, a Japanese tour boat that sank last month, killing 11 of the 26 people on board, was making use of amateur radio illegally as one of its main communications methods, according to a report in one of Japan's leading daily newspapers. Steve Richards, G4HPE, from the Southgate News Service, has more. You may recall news about the Japanese tourist boat Kazu-1, which sank off Hokkaido's Shiritoko Peninsula in April 2022, with 11 passengers confirmed dead and 15 other passengers reported missing. During the inquiry into the incident, it came to light that the operator had illegally used ham radio on a regular basis as a communications method prior to the fatal incident. Japan's Radio Act prohibits the usage of amateur radio except in emergency situations. The carelessness and negligence in the management of these tourist boat operations has been brought to the fore. It was revealed that cell phones and satellite phones were listed as emergency contact methods on charts displayed on the Kazoo One tour boat, their shore-based office, affiliated bodies and other parties. 
However, on the date of the accident, on April the 23rd, 2022, the boat tried to use amateur radio to contact other ships and the offices of other boat tour operators in at least three instances. It is thought that the Kazoo One boat's satellite phone was broken and that the cell phone of the captain of the boat could not receive a signal as they were in a cellular dead zone. As a result, another individual's cell phone was eventually used to seek help. Using amateur radio in operations for the purpose of financial gain is prohibited under the Japanese Radio Act. Parties who violate this may be subjected to imprisonment of one year or under, or a fine of around 1 million yen, which is about £6,500. However, according to multiple sources, amateur radio had been used as the main means of communication amongst the operator's boats, as well as between boats and the office for quite some time. As calling rates for satellite phones are high and individuals are responsible for covering mobile phone fees, it was possible that amateur radio was used to cut back on expenses. Japan's Radio Act forbids the use of amateur radio for profit-making purposes, but according to a report on the Mainichi Shimbun news site, the Yazoo One tour boat relied often on ham radio to communicate with the office, other tour operators, and other ships. The report did not say what kind of distress led to the boat sinking, nor did it say whether anyone also used amateur radio that day to summon help. Anyone found guilty of violation of the Radio Act in Japan faces a possibility of as much as one year in prison or a fine of one million yen, the equivalent of $7,700 in U.S. currency. After taking a few detours over the past couple of years due to the COVID-19 pandemic, ARRL field day rules are being updated on a permanent basis starting this summer. ARRL conducted a field day community survey with invitations propagated far and wide. Direct emails sent to more than 15,000 individuals in ARRL-affiliated clubs. After sorting through, reviewing, and discussing the survey results, the ARRL Programs and Services Committee recommended a number of rule changes for field day, which will take place this year over the June 25th and 26th weekends. Starting this year, the maximum PEP output for a transmitter used by anyone submitting a field day log will be 100 watts. The power multiplier of two will remain in place, and the high power category will be removed from the rules. Until this year, the maximum low power limit had been 150 watts for most sponsored operating events. The power multiplier will remain at 5 for QRP participants running a maximum of 5 watts or less. As previously announced, 100 watts is now the low power category limit for all ARRL and International Amateur Radio Union HF contests, effective January 1st, 2022. A couple of changes instituted initially as accommodations for the COVID-19 pandemic will remain. Class D home stations will continue to be able to earn points for contacts with other Class D stations. The club aggregate scoring change initiated in 2020 as a temporary measure will now become part of the permanent rules. In the aggregate scoring plan, these scores of individual stations are combined under the score of a single club. Another change involving Rule 7.3.2, media publicity, has been modified. Rules to date have offered 100 bonus points for attempting to obtain publicity and demonstrating the same. With the ease of posting via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and other media websites, field day participants will now be required to obtain publicity, not just try to do so. Any combination of bona fide media hits would qualify for the bonus points. 
For example, posting the details of your upcoming or ongoing field day activity or your field day results on a club or news media site on Facebook or via Twitter or Instagram would meet the bonus criteria. Photos and videos are encouraged as part of your media posts. German radio amateurs have been given a grant of 249,424 euros, or roughly $260,000, by Amateur Radio Digital Communications Group to develop software that will allow the use of global system for mobile communications, known as GSM, and General Packet Radio Service, or GPRS, technology on amateur radio bands. A post by the ARDC reads in part that open-source mobile communications, known as Osmocon, is an umbrella project fiscally sponsored by the Deutsche Amateur Radio Club that hosts, develops, and maintains mobile communications and SDR open-source projects, with a main focus on cellular telephony systems. Osmocom identified a gap between the last decade of very promising open-source developments in cellular technology and the requirements of being able to use this in the context of amateur radio. This grant will be used to develop software that will allow the use of GSM and GPRS technology on amateur radio bands by implementing a SDR PHY that can be plugged beneath the existing Osmocom BB code to allow its use on general-purpose SDR hardware such as the Lime SDR or USRP series of radios, which will add basic support for packet-switched GPRS services by Osmocom BB. Osmocom developers will utilize their long-term experience developing open-source software for mobile communications to carry out the project. Any developments made within this project are developed as part of existing free open-source software projects published under licenses recognized by the FSF Free Software Definition and the OSI Open Source Definition. The entire development process happens in the Osmocom community using publicly accessible resources such as Redmine Issue Tracker, Garrett Code Review Platform, mailing lists, IRC channel, etc. Once completed, the work within this project will pave the way to a potential subsequent development of eight PSK-based technologies in order to significantly increase the achievable packet data rates within the same narrowband channel. Amelia Earhart, the American pioneering aviator, crossed the Atlantic Ocean nonstop on May 20th and 21st in 1932 becoming the first female pilot to do so. On the 90th anniversary of that achievement, some radio waves will accomplish the same thing. For more information on this upcoming special event operation, we go to Steve Richards, G4HPE, who files this report through the Southgate News Service. Radio amateurs in Derry, London, Derry and Kansas will be on the air to celebrate the 90th anniversary of the transatlantic crossing by pioneering aviator Amelia Earhart. On May 20th, 1932, piloting a Lockheed Vega 5B, Earhart made a non-stop solo transatlantic flight. She set off from Newfoundland, intending to fly to Paris. Nearly 15 hours later, she landed in Robert Gallagher's cow pasture in Ballyarnott in Derry, Londonderry, Northern Ireland. She was the first woman to achieve such a feat. She received the United States Distinguished Flying Cross for this accomplishment.
Amelia Earhart has several commemorative memorials named in her honour around the United States, including an urban park, an airport, a residence hall, a museum, a research foundation, a bridge, a cargo ship, a dam, four schools, a hotel, a playhouse, a library and multiple roads. She also has a minor planet and a newly discovered lunar crater named after her. So, in Northern Ireland, Golf Bravo Zero Alpha Echo Lima will be active between the 13th of May and the 30th of May 2022. The Northwest Group Amateur Radio Club Station, Mike November Zero November Whiskey Golf, will host the activation on most dates throughout the event, and on the 21st of May, they will also be active from the cow pasture in which Amelia touched down on her epic flight. You can find out more about the operation by looking up Golf Bravo Zero Alpha Echo Lima at qrz.com. Meanwhile, in Kansas, Earhart's hometown, operators Steve KC0VYS and Chuck KB0TOT will be on the air on May 20th and 21st at what is now Amelia Earhart Memorial Airport. Both stations will be offering commemorative certificates for hams who make successful contacts. Steve wrote on his QRZ page that the hams in Kansas will be using his call sign and promoting the Irish activation too. By the way, the AEL in GB0AEL stands for Amelia Earhart Legacy. Hams in the Northwest Group have written that by making contact with GB0AEL, you will also be making history. You're listening to This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a podcast at our website, www.twiar.net, and streamed worldwide via Spotify and iHeartMedia. And now with the latest technology news and commentary from Petaluma, California. This Week in Amateur Radio is proud to present Leo Laporte. Google's really gone downhill. Am I wrong? Google has really gone downhill. The search engine's still, you know, okay. It's gotten worse. There's a lot more junk in it uh, and, you know, a lot more greed. And it's certainly clear that Google uh, is under uh, no obligation to protect our privacy anymore. And, in fact, is actively seeking to prevent us from doing the same for ourselves. But I subscribed, foolishly, perhaps, to YouTube TV. You know, it was kind of a cable substitute. 65 bucks a month, that's, you know, cable TV territory. But I got the locals and, and all of that. And then, foolishly, when the Olympics were on uh, last winter, I spent another 20 bucks a month for 4K, even though there's very limited 4K content on there, mostly the Olympics. But that's 85 bucks a month. Now we're really talking some money. And I should have paid more attention because about two months ago, Google started to say, hey, you're in Wilkes-Barre again. No, I'm not in Wilkes-Barre. But there was no, seemed to be no way to tell it otherwise. I don't know why it thought I was. It had something to do with locations, permissions or something. I don't know. Probably, I'm thinking, had something to do with the uh, all the stuff I run for my privacy, like VPNs and uBlock Origin and next dns and all that stuff stuff to protect me from advertisers snooping on everything i'm doing i don't think google likes that so much kept saying you're in wilkes bar pa i said no no i'm here in uh, the bay area 
No, you're in Wilkes Bar, PA. Well, finally today, I wanted to, like I said, I wanted to watch the Kentucky Derby, and it said, no, you can't watch anymore because you're in Wilkes Bar, PA, and or you're supposed to be. Your home is in Wilkes Bar, PA, but you seem to keep being in this the Bay Area. Well, yeah, because when I signed up, that's where I was. I have never left. In fact, the last two years, I haven't spent a lot of time traveling, and I've never been to Wilkes Bar, PA ever. So I thought, well, no problem. I'll go to tech support. You you know where this is going. <laughs> if you have any issue, it says there's a link on the page. Contact us. I click that link. It takes you to a bunch of useless suggestions, and there is no other way to contact them. Now, I understand. If you're not paying Google for a service like Gmail or Google Search, you can't really expect them to offer much support. It's expensive. But I'm giving them 85 bucks a month. <laughs> I think I should get at least a little bit. I mean, as much as I would get from Comcast, nothing. Then I tried to cancel. Oh, good luck. <laughs> it seems to have decided that since I am insisting on being in the Bay Area, even though I clearly live in Wilkes-Barre, PA, it's not going to let me cancel. Wow. You know, I've been for a long time, I've mentioned, you know, when we, we talk about uh, email. Oh, yeah, use Gmail. It's free. But and, you know, every once in a while we'll get the calls. Remember the, 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 the very nice person who called and said she went to Google's offices in Irvine and banged on the door because they'd taken away her account. and She couldn't find it. There was no way to talk to a human. <laughs> she banged. Nobody came to the door in Irvine. I don't maybe there's somebody in there. Maybe not. I don't know. But they sure as heck aren't going to the door if somebody's banging on it. I think Google has. I don't know what's the wheels are coming off, aren't they? My friend Mike Elgin, who's been a Google watcher and, and, and like me, a Google fan in the, since the early years, he was a big promoter of a Google Plus, which is Google's failed social network. He, he was all in on that. I guess he learned a lesson. He says uh, the problem is the CEO, the guy at the top of Alphabet, Sundar Pichai, is terrible. And I said, well, come on, how bad could be, he be? But here's a company that really should own the world at this point. And instead, the wheels just seem to be falling off. It's it's uh, it's too bad. I'm going to have to stop recommending YouTube TV and Gmail. I guess you know what are you going to do there? You know you could use DuckDuckGo. That's another search engine. Probably will start using that. It's kind of hard to get out of the Googleverse though. People have tried. Was it Cashmere Hill who a couple of years ago did a New York Times piece on uh, you know trying to get big tech out of her uh, life, including Google, and failing miserably? There's this is probably cause for concern. They're so tightly embedded in everything we do that it's almost like you can't get out of it. You can't. Yeah, I know. People in the chat room are going, well, there's all these support pages. I went to all those support pages. <laughs> Believe me, trust me, I'm not an idiot. In fact, I'm the tech guy. And this is what really comes home to me is it's hard if, if, if a person who spends his life, as I do, immersed in technology, using technology, using it at a high level, I believe, you know, writing my own code and things. If I can't navigate it, I don't know how any normal person is going to. And, oh, yeah, support.google.com slash YouTube. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Good luck on that one. We've always joked that uh, Google support is a, a bunch of Python scripts, programming scripts, and I think it's true. Let's see, what else? Oh, I will tell you something Google won't like. Firefox 100 came out. Firefox is the also-ran browser. You know, I feel bad for them. They're slowly going down the charts. Google is 
again, another place where Google is totally dominant. Google Chrome is the vast majority of browsing. You probably use it. Most people do. Edge is number two because it comes with Windows. It's the default with Windows. Safari is number three because it comes with you know, iPhone and, and Macintosh. So it's it's kind of the default. So people, you know, who haven't changed browsers are still using the browser that came with the operating system. Everybody else seems to be using Chrome. But I'm a fan of Firefox for if for no other reason that it's nice to have variety. We don't want to live in a monoculture where Google dominates completely. Competition is good for us as users. may not be good for Google, but it's good for us as users. So I use Firefox. Firefox 100 just came out. And it, there's an interesting little switch that you can turn on. And Google's not going to like this. This is a switch that uh, Google has continuously avoided putting in. There used to be a switch called Do Not Track. Remember that? Which, as it turned out, Do Not Track was a lie. A lie. You would switch that thing in your browser and everybody ignore it. Well, there's something uh, with some power now behind it, a little uh, a stick as well as a carrot behind it, thanks to the EU and GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation. Privacy law has come into effect. Actually, it's been in effect since 2018. And one of the things it's supposed to do is enforce global privacy. And boy, was was the EU smart when they did this, because instead of the traditional slap on the wrist fines that you get here in the U.S. if, you know, you hire the Federal Trade Commission. Their fines can go up to 10% of your global revenue, like billions of dollars. 10% of your global revenue. That's, that's designed to hurt. That's designed to hurt. So they've got this global privacy control that they're enforcing. And now California is enforcing through its CCPA with some severe fines. Oh, so companies can't ignore it, as they did do not track, when you turn on this setting. Where, you may say, is the setting? Well, at least right now, it's hidden away. I don't think Google ever implemented it in Chrome, but you can get it in Firefox. Now, it's a little tricky, so I'm going to put this in the show notes. But uh, if you want to follow along at home, you open your Firefox browser and you go to the configuration page, the hidden configuration page. You do that by typing in the address about colon config. About colon config. It says proceed with caution. War proceed with caution. Accept the risk and continue. That's fine. Go ahead. This is not risky. Leo said you could do this. Unless, well, it might risk your YouTube TV. I don't know. It's going to risk Google's ire. If you type in global privacy in the search, you'll get two settings. Global privacy controlled enabled global privacy control functionality enabled. Now, right now, it's disabled. It's false. But over on the right, there's a little uh, double-headed arrow. You click that, it turns it into true. Suddenly, you have turned your browser into a privacy protection superhero. And you can verify that if you go to globalprivacycontrol.org, which is the homepage for this initiative out of the EU and California. At the top, it'll say, if you've turned it on, GPC signal detected. Now, what that means is you've told the browser to tell any site you go to, I want privacy. Do not track me at the risk of a severe penalty. That's the change, right? We we had do not track before, but there's no penalty. So everybody said, yeah, right. <laughs> Excellent, Smitties. Now, I'm hoping, I'm thinking, 
they're going to have to pay attention because it's 10% of your global revenues, kids. That's a lot of money for the Goog. Pay attention when I say don't collect information about me. It's probably one of the reasons I, I, I have to cancel my subscription to YouTube TV. But we want to know what you're doing. Leo, how are you supposed to uh, uh, give you advertisements? For a long time, I thought it was about advertisements. It was. But lately, it's been about more than that because we've seen, uh, in the case of Google, Apple, Snapchat, and others, uh, hackers being able to trick them into giving out personal information that they've been collecting for doxing purposes. Teenagers looking to follow around other teenagers have been able to call Google pretend or email Google pretend to be law enforcement. And Google goes, yeah, yeah, what do you want to know? No warrant, nothing. I just like to know her home address. Oh, no problem. Here we have it. And that's that. So suddenly I'm, and of course, law enforcement can do this as well. And government can do this as well. There was a story about data brokers the other day that terrified me. Data brokers selling information about who was visiting Planned Parenthood clinics. 167 bucks. Vice got it. The website. 167 bucks. You can get a list of everybody who's visited a Planned Parenthood clinic over the last week. That's all. No warrant, nothing. Hmm. So suddenly this becomes important, doesn't it? So just to mention, you can turn this privacy protection on. I know it's not enough. It's just a start, but we need to start doing this, I think. Anyway, I'm glad you were here, and I'm here, and I'll be here next week, and I hope you'll come by and bring your friends, too, as we talk high tech. Leo Laporte, the tech guy. Are you ready for another trip into amateur radio history? I'm Bill Continelli, W2XOY, and I'll be back in a moment with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives, here on This Week in Amateur Radio. You are listening to North America's premier news and information service for the amateur radio hobbyist. We are This Week in Amateur Radio. And now with this week's edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives, here's Bill Continelli, W2XOY. Do you remember that magic moment? No, I'm not talking about a song. I'm referring to that particular point in time when you heard the call of the RF and realized radio was in your blood. For me, that moment came in October 1962, over 40 years ago. In October 1962, the Cold War was at its peak thanks to the Cuban Missile Crisis. The United States was closer to nuclear war than it ever had been. Like most nuclear families of the 50s and 60s, pun intended, we had a bomb shelter of sorts in the basement. One Saturday morning, my father, my brother, and I went down to check it out. Canned food, bottled water, first aid kit, blankets, and extra clothes were there. But there was no transistor radio. Worse, we realized we didn't even own a transistor radio. All we had were tube-type AC-only models. And so, that cold October morning, we all jumped in Dad's 1961 Ford station wagon for the trip that would change my life. 
Our destination was Olson's Electronics on Main Street in Buffalo, New York. For those who don't remember Olson's, it was a discount electronics chain headquartered in Akron, Ohio. They sold radios, CBs, hi-fi receivers, tube testers, and other electronic equipment under the Olson name. In addition, they appear to deal in discontinued, surplus, and overstocked radios under a variety of off-brand names. They issued a catalog several times a year. Unlike Heathkit, Allied, or Lafayette, whose catalogs were glossy, full-color productions, the Olson catalog was printed tabloid style on cheap newsprint with black and white illustrations. Since they carried dozens of off-brand equipment, the catalog descriptions were often generic. A typical ad might say, Six transistor pocket radio, $5.95. Style and color may vary. The Olson catalog also featured a treasure chest. Hidden within the product descriptions were the names of several customers. If you spotted your name, you got $5. We walked into that dingy, cluttered store, and I was immediately hit with the smell. You know what I'm talking about. The combined odors of new radios, old musty radios, heated filaments, and melting solder. Then, my eyes beheld the exquisite sight of radios of every type in every square inch of the store. My ears caught the sounds of shortwave broadcasts, CB transmissions, and crisp, clear stereophonic music. My hands thrilled to the touch of Bakelite knobs, push-to-talk microphones, and telegraph keys. Deep within my body, I felt the emergence of longings and desires that I knew were inappropriate for a ten-year-old boy. I was hooked. Anyway, my father also caught the fever because he went on a spending spree. He bought an all-transistor four-band radio, AM, Marine Band, and two shortwave bands. Dad bought us each a pocket radio. Mine was a Jade 10 transistor, and my younger brother got an Essex 6 transistor unit. And then we turned our attention to the CB radios. Dad bought three Olsen one-channel 100-milliwatt walkie-talkies and an Olsen audio-visual spotter. This was a 5-watt 12-channel CB rig 22-channel tunable receive and built-in AC-DC power supply. CB crystals, a back of set CB antenna, and batteries completed our purchase. The cost? Over $300. That's about $1,200 today, adjusted for inflation. The next day, my father's friend, an avid CBer, came over to check out the radios. He brought a collection of popular electronics magazines from 1959 to 1962, an ARRL license manual, and the ARRL book, Understanding Amateur Radio. He installed the CB in my room, much to my delight, and had a few CUSOs with my brother and I as we walked around the neighborhood. Then, my father solemnly removed the microphone and hit it, saying that we couldn't transmit until he received his CB license. It took me only two days to find the microphone and hide it in my room. He never noticed it was gone. The next few weeks were a blur as I explored every kilocycle from the AM band right up to the CB channels. Buffalo was on the shores of Lake Erie, and I heard plenty of marine traffic, which at that time was in the AM mode on the 2 to 3 megacycle band. 75 and 40 meters gave me plenty of AM QSOs. 
I logged over 20 countries on shortwave and a dozen states on the AM band. The 100 milliwatt Olson walkie-talkies had a city range of about six blocks, and on the rare occasions when I plugged in the mic in the Olson, its five watts gave me over three miles, even with the indoor antenna. When I wasn't on one of the radios, I was reading and rereading the popular electronics magazines, devouring the columns on shortwave listening, CB and ham radio, and of course, drooling over the ads. That Christmas, Santa gave me two surprises from Olson, a tape recorder and an AM broadcast kit. Dad and I assembled the kit, I strung up 50 foot of wire to the garage, plugged in the crystal microphone, and got on the air. The AM broadcaster had a range of about four blocks with very good audio. I was complete. Over the next few years, I saved every penny that I received at Christmas, on my birthday, and from my allowance. I tagged along every time my mother took the bus downtown, and I begged her to walk the three blocks to the Olson store. As time went on, I acquired other Olson products a 2-watt, 3-channel CB walkie-talkie, VHF receivers for the low, high, and aircraft bands, as well as 6 and 2 meter, a code practice oscillator, bigger and better shortwave radios, and audio and FM equipment. By 1969, however, things started to change. I now had my novice license, WN2MAM, and Heathkit, Lafayette, and AES catalogs grabbed my attention. A Radio Shack store opened up just three blocks from my house. By 1971, I had a general class license, a driver's license, and access to a car. I gradually sold off my Olson equipment and replaced them with state-of-the-art radios purchased at the suburban Lafayette, Radio Shack, and Heathkit stores. The Olson catalogs were tossed, unread, into the garbage. Eventually, they stopped coming. I didn't even miss them. In 1977, I moved from Buffalo to Albany, New York. There was no Olson store there. Sometime during this period, Olson went out of business. I didn't even notice. Last year, on a visit to Buffalo, I drove down the block where the Olson store once stood. The street was empty. The stores abandoned and boarded up. Later, I got on eBay and did a search on Olson Electronics. Nothing came up. Compare that to the hundreds of items you will find when you search under Lafayette or Heathkit. I went to the Akron, Ohio website and searched for Olson. Again, nothing. I emailed Rex, a discount electronics chain also headquartered in Ohio, and asked them if they were the corporate descendants of Olson. They told me no. Like an unwanted lover, Olson is gone and apparently forgotten. To quote an old song, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a stream to your favorite digital device on Spotify, TuneIn.com, Overcast, iHeartMedia, and wherever you download your podcasts. This is November 3, Victor Echo Mike from Parks on the Air with your month ending April 2022 Parks on the Air update. Be sure to visit parksontheair.com for information about the program and poda.app for spotting, park information, leaderboards, and more. In Parks on the Air news, 
Due to popular demand and a willing supply of sponsors, we have added three new DX Hunter categories to this summer's plaque event to complement the new DX Activator plaques. This brings the total number of plaques available to win up to 17. To have a shot at winning these plaques, join the fun on July 16th and 17th. More details are available from the plaque event menu item at poda.app. If you're a ham that happens to be into free and open-source social media platforms as an alternative to the offerings of the large corporate interests, we're pleased to share that Parks on the Air and several of its volunteers now have a presence on the Fediverse. Look for us using the handle at parksontheair at mastodon.radio. And now for everybody's favorite segment, the monthly stats update. April's activity weekend gave us a nice mid-month boost, which helped drive the monthly totals. We had over 2,000 operators out who did 11,281 activations from 4,333 parks in 34 different DX entities. The top activators for the month were the same two individuals as last month, N2 NWK, who this month did 278 activations, and W6ZD, who activated a mind-blowing 198 different parks. The top hunters for the month were K9ICP, who hunted 966 parks, and AD2CD, who made 1,598 QSOs, just edging out N3XLS. In POTA DX, we had a changing of the guard in Region 1. The activators in Spain came out in full force and edged out England based on the number of activations. Canada and Japan continued to hold their top spots in Regions 2 and 3 respectively. Our top DX activators this month were HI8DL from the Dominican Republic, who did 76 activations, and VA7DBJ from Canada, who activated 62 parks. Last but not least, let's check in on the progress of the Bailey Sprott Challenge. In 2021, N5HA and W9AV each managed to hunt a park every day. In 2022, we're following along to see if anyone else can match their feet. At 120 days into the year, we have three activators who have activated every day of the year, along with three others who may still be in the running pending log uploads. N2NWK, KE8PZN, KD4MZM, K4NYM, KB3WAV, and WC1N. The pool of hunters is now down to 36. To all of the Bailey Sprout participants, congrats on your success so far, and we look forward to seeing how you do now that we have passed the 100-day mark. This concludes our April 2022 Parks on the Air update. As always, the team at Parks on the Air wishes you safe activations and happy hunting. 73. In the USA recently, there was a major cycling event in Tulsa, the state of Oklahoma's second largest city. With hundreds of cyclists riding over a 100 miles in the so-called Tour de Tulsa, there was bound to be some help they need along the way. And that's where local radio amateurs stepped in. And Fox 23 News TV was there to report how they did it. Speaking to reporters, Representative Paul Teal, Whiskey Bravo 5 Alpha November X-Ray, said that parts of the cycling route were out in the middle of nowhere. Some of the cyclists in the Tour de Tulsa ride up to 103 miles, and what they face is not always smooth. Paul said that where there's stuff on the road, they're going to have flat tyres, and they're going to be tired. And that's where the radio hams help, providing their time and equipment as a community service. Paul Teal is a member of the Tulsa Amateur Radio Club. His love for the hobby dates back to his middle school days, and he's held his license since 1969. 
During the event, fellow club members hit the road, not on bikes, but in their radio-equipped cars. They had people out on the course who could assist the riders. If they had a flat tyre, pumps were available, there was water, and if necessary, first aid. The club's mobile command trailer comes equipped with a full mast and communications equipment. From there, they communicate back and forth with their chasers along the route. They can also track their locations in real time with computers. Paul Teal said that this enabled them to see where everyone was located. The chasers, in turn, radio back when they find someone in need. Teal and his deputy then dispatch help to their location. The whole mobile control setup can be towed just about anywhere it's needed. Teal said that their organisation and their technology had been used all the way back to Hurricane Katrina. The capabilities of the mobile command trailer go beyond just assisting at a bike ride. With the use of its own generator, they can support places without power or the internet and carry on providing essential communications. Communications at the cycling event, which gave riders a little peace of mind. Whiskey Bravo 5 Alpha November X-Ray said that when you can help somebody fix a flat tyre, when you can help people to get some water, some first aid, or just a ride to the next rest stop, that's great for the team. You can watch the TV news video at www.fox23.com forward slash news. Researchers at Colorado State University are predicting an above-normal Atlantic hurricane season for 2022. Hurricane season runs from June 1st to November 30th each year, although the storms don't always respect those dates. Colorado State University's Center for Tropical Weather and Climate Research issued its annual forecast in early April, predicting 19 named storms, 9 hurricanes, and 4 major hurricanes this year, versus the 30-year average from 1991 to 2020 of 14.4, 7.2, and 3.2, respectively. The forecasters noted that current weak La Nina conditions look fairly likely to transition to neutral ENSO, or El Nino Southern Oscillation, by this summer or fall, but the odds of a significant El Nino seem unlikely. Sea surface temperatures averaged across the eastern and central tropical Atlantic are currently near average, while Caribbean and subtropical Atlantic sea surface temperatures are warmer than normal. We anticipate an above-average probability for major hurricanes making landfall along the continental United States coastline and in the Caribbean. The researchers concluded, as is the case with all hurricane seasons, coastal residents are reminded that it only takes one hurricane making landfall to make it an active season for them. They should prepare the same for every season, regardless of how much activity is predicted. Hams living in hurricane-prone areas should first make sure that they and their families are well prepared for hurricane damage and extended power outages. Then take advantage of available training through FEMA, the National Weather Service, and local emergency communication groups in order to be able to help effectively if needed. Amateurs in potentially affected areas should monitor the hurricane watch net on 14.325 MHz upper sideband during the day and 7.268 MHz lower sideband at night. The net is activated whenever a tropical system reaches hurricane status 
and is within 300 miles of a populated land area or at the request of forecasters. For more information on the Hurricane Watch Net, visit www.hwn.org. Originating from Albany, New York, and distributed worldwide, you are listening to This Week in Amateur Radio. Foundations of Amateur Radio In our hobby, we regularly invoke line of sight when we discuss the VHF and higher bands. It's a simple concept to help describe when two transceivers can hear each other. The process evokes an image of a beam of light travelling unobstructed between the antennas at either end. Some might picture a laser, others a flashlight. Both are useful to become familiar with some of the concepts. If there's a pole between the two, a laser beam, unless it's particularly powerful, won't go through to the other side. A flashlight beam, on the other hand, might fit around the pole and still be visible at the destination. That illustrates that objects can get in the way of a signal, reducing strength and sometimes blocking it entirely. But it's not the only effect at play. Imagine a building with a mirror glued to its side. If you shine a laser at an angle at the mirror, you can reflect the light off the mirror and essentially still land on target. This is useful if you want to avoid an obstacle directly between you and your destination. The reflected light travels a different and slightly longer distance than direct light would, but if there's no obstacles, both will arrive at the destination. This is an example of a multipath, where the same signal arrives at its destination using multiple different paths. If you've ever used HF radio, making a contact on the other side of the planet, it should come as no surprise that radio waves travel in more than just straight lines. Depending on frequency, radio waves can be affected by phenomena like ionospheric reflection and refraction, atmospheric ducting, and even bounce off water, the ground, mountains, hills, and objects like buildings, aircraft, and even water droplets along their path. Each of these calls a radio signal to take multiple paths to arrive at the destination. It gets better. A radio signal that travels along a different path takes a measurable difference in time to get to its destination when compared with another path for the same signal. From a radio signal perspective, this difference in time is also known as a phase shift. Now consider a single radio signal that travels along two paths, just like our laser beam and mirror. If you imagine a radio signal as a sine wave, you can draw the two signals on the same chart. They will be in lockstep with each other since they're the same radio signal, but they won't be on the same place on the chart. In relation to each other, they'll be shifted along the time axis, since one took longer than the other to get to the destination. At the destination, the receiver hears a combination of both those signals. They're added together. That means that what's sent and what's received are not the same thing, and why it's a great idea to use phonetics in radio communications. In some cases, the two signals help and strengthen each other. They're said to interfere constructively. And sometimes the signals hinder and cancel each other out, or interfere destructively. Said in another way, a radio signal can arrive at a receiver along multiple paths at the same time. What's heard at the receiver is essentially a cacophony caused by each slightly different path. Since the signals are essentially all the same, some of these signals reinforce each other, where some cancel each other out. 
This effect isn't absolute, since the different path lengths aren't all exact multiples of the wavelength of the signal. They're all over the place, but there will be groups of paths that help and groups that hinder. This phenomenon was first described by Augustine Jean Fresnel on the 14th of July 1816 in relation to light, and we now call these groups Fresnel zones. Fresnel zones are numbered 1, 2, 3 and up. The first or primary Fresnel zone is the first group of radio signals that helps strengthen the signal. The second zone is the first group of signals that hinders. The third zone is the second group of radio signals that helps, and so on. Odd helps, even hinders. I should point out that a Fresnel zone is three-dimensional. The primary Fresnel zone essentially has the shape of a zeppelin stretched between the source and the target. The secondary zone is wrapped around the outside of the primary zone like a second skin, but it's thicker in the middle. In practical terms, what this means in point-to-point -point radio communications is that your antenna needs to be located in a place where most of the signal arrives. The rule of thumb is that the primary Fresnel zone needs to be at least 60% clear, but ideally 80%. If you're in a situation where a receiver is moving, say in a car, you can imagine that your antenna is moving in and out of direct line of sight to a transmitter. But it's also moving between the various Fresnel zones. If you were to move your antenna from the first Fresnel zone to the second, and then the third, the signal would be strong, then weak, then strong again. If your receiver is an FM receiver and it's moving from the first zone to the second, it could fall below a threshold and the signal would effectively vanish. Continue to move from the second into the third zone and the signal would sound like it suddenly reappeared as it climbed above the threshold. Do it fast enough and the signal sounds like it's stuttering. That stuttering has a name. In amateur radio we call it picket fencing or flutter and it's commonly heard in mobile situations on FM transmissions on the VHF and higher bands but it can be caused by other changes in propagation distance for example an antenna moving in the wind. The higher the frequency the less movement is needed to experience this. To add to the fun of radio the same threshold effects actually called the FM capture effect can be caused by other phenomena like two stations of similar strength on the same frequency or interference from the electronics in your vehicle. And finally, I should point out that the higher the frequency, the smaller the Fresnel zones, and the more susceptible to an object in the path a signal is. But you already knew that. A pole will block a laser beam, but not a two-meter conversation on the local repeater. So, line of sight isn't just a straight line, it's a whole lot more fun. I'm Ono, Victor Kilo 6, Foxtrot Lima, Alpha Bravo. Online ticketing has opened for the Northeast Ham Exposition, which will be held on August 26th through the 28th in Marlboro, Massachusetts. Formerly known as Boxborough, the New England Division Convention features a Saturday morning keynote address, Friday and Saturday evening banquets with guest speakers, a large outdoor flea market, and ample indoor vendor space. Proceeds from the convention will benefit scholarships for both the New England and Hudson Division students. Volunteers and speakers will be drawn from both divisions. Other details will be worked out as things progress. It certainly has been a while since the Hudson Division has had a convention, said AWRL Hudson Division Director Rhea Jaram and 2RJ. By joining forces with the New England Division for a joint convention, we can bring back a sense of nostalgia and community. New AWRL New England Division Director Fred Kemmerer 
AB1OC said, We are excited to have the Hudson Division join with New England to support and grow the 2022 Ham Exposition event. Kemmerer called it a great opportunity to expand Ham Exposition participation and programs and to work to provide support for the scholarships to young Hams in both divisions. AWRL First Vice President Mike Racebeck, K1TWF, predicted larger attendance than has been seen in many years. In February, FEMERA, the organization that runs Ham Exposition, voted to officially approve the unique arrangement. The combined events have received AWRL Division Convention sanctioning, approved by Directors Kemmerer and Jaram. Both are members of the Ham Exposition Convention Committee, along with New England Division Vice Director Phil Temples, K9HI, who serves as the program chair. Vice President Racebeck is the FEMERA president and the convention's vice chairman. Racebeck said Ham Exposition will return to the venue selected for last year's event, the Best Western Royal Plaza Hotel and Trade Center in Marlborough. The new facility has everything we had hoped for. It is newer and larger than the old venue and is more centrally located with restaurants, shops, and other hotels only minutes away, he said. We have long-term commitments from the hotel and we plan to be at this location for the foreseeable future. You can visit the convention website for more information such as how to volunteer, serve as a speaker, and take advantage of the convention discount when booking hotel reservations. General admission tickets, flea market spaces, and Friday and Saturday banquet tickets can now be purchased online. You're listening to This Week in Amateur Radio, available worldwide as a podcast from our web at www.twiar.net. It's time for the weekly propagation forecast report, brought to us each week by Tad Cook, K7RA, in Seattle, Washington, who reports that we saw some evidence of sporadic E propagation this week on 6 and 10 meters. Always surprising and exciting. Solar activity was about the same as last week, at least going by the numbers. Average daily sunspot numbers rose slightly from 68.6 to 74.4 while the average daily solar flux only budged from 120 to 120.3. Geomagnetic indicators were quieter, with average daily planetary A index shifting from 10.7 to 5, and the middle latitude numbers from 9.3 to 4.6. So looking ahead, the outlook for solar flux is more optimistic than last week's predictions, with no values below 100, Expected solar flux values are 135 on May 14th through the 16th, then 132, 128, 126, and 120 on May 17th through the 20th, then 118, 120, 124, and 121 on May 21st through the 24th. Looking at the planetary A index now, it is predicted to be 12 on May 14th and 15th, then 14 and 8 on May 16th and 17th, 5 on May 18th and 19th, and then 12 and 8 on May 20th and 21st, and 5 on May 22nd and 23rd. The MSET report this week from Bruce Page, KK5DO. The CSS ARC, known as the Amateur Radio Payload for the Chinese Space Station, is ready. 
It was proposed by the Chinese Radio Amateurs Club, the Aerospace System Engineering Research Institute of Shanghai, and the Harbin Institute of Technology. This payload will allow hams uh, aboard the uh, Chinese space station to communicate with hams worldwide, and the frequencies have been coordinated with the IRAU. The payload is planned for launch in the third quarter of 2022. This first phase will allow for VHF, VHF single mode, or UHF multi-mode for the crew voice, VHF or UHF single mode, or UHF VHF for the FM repeater, VHF single mode or UHF 1K2 AFSK for the digipeter, and VHF single or UHF for the slow scan TV or digital mode. Many more frequencies are available. You can find them at ansat.org. Just scroll down to ANS and select release number 128. Younger radio amateurs visiting Hamvention this month will find a busy agenda at the Youth on the Air booth in the Xenia Fairgrounds Volta Building. Booth 4304 will be welcoming young visitors by hosting mini-forums on Friday and Saturday in coordination with Aries, Hamsai, and the Osme Foundation, and a number of other groups. There will also be social hours for young amateurs who stop by on Friday and Saturday at noon. These activities will take place in a small meeting area just behind the main booth. For more details, visit youthontheair.org slash hamvention2022. The Village of Geeks is happening this summer in the UK. More than 2,000 people are expected this summer at Electromagnetic Field, which will bring technology, scientific curiosity, and a special event amateur radio station to East North Castle Deer Park in Herefordshire in the United Kingdom. The volunteer-run not-for-profit event is taking place between the 2nd and 5th of June this year and will include Amateur Radio Village GX1 EMF and AMSAT UK Village GB4 EMF. Campers will be able to arrive as early as Thursday before in order to set up, and they didn't take down their camp until Monday following. In addition to speakers and workshops on everyone's favorite tech topics, there will be music and other entertainments. The event is held every two years, although the 2020 field day was canceled because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Ticket prices and other information is available at the website emfcamp.org. That's emfcamp.org. Those attending only for the day are eligible for free admission. The UK regulator Ofcom has set out proposals to unlock new and innovative wireless technologies for everyday use, as well as making services faster, more reliable and more secure. First, they're consulting on changes to the rules that apply to short-range devices. Typically, these devices are mass-market, portable consumer products and include keyless entry cards, baby monitors and garage door openers. Under their proposals, Ofcom intends to increase the amount of spectrum available for short-range device uses, including road safety, low-power Wi-Fi and drones. Plans also include liberalising the technical conditions for some ultra-wideband devices, such as keyless car entry systems. This will enable the use of a special mitigation technology called Trigger Before Transmit, which in turn will make keyless entry systems more secure and reduce the risk of opportunist thefts or relay attacks, where criminals intercept the key fob signal. 
Ofcom is also consulting on plans to open up the millimetre wave spectrum across the 26 gigahertz and 40 gigahertz spectrum bands to mobile technology, including 5G services. Millimetre wave spectrum could deliver significant benefits by enabling large wireless data capacity and speed over short distances. The technology can be used to improve mobile broadband services and deliver innovative new services across the UK. It could be particularly beneficial in locations and venues with a lot of mobile users, such as train stations, football stadiums and concerts, where demands on current networks can mean mobile data speeds can be sluggish. As well as mobile services, millimetre wave spectrum could, in future, also support innovative wireless applications requiring a large amount of data, very high speeds, or both. Early indications from the mobile industry suggest this could include applications such as virtual reality, factory automation, and intelligent transport systems. Ofcom is seeking views on how to make the spectrum available. It is proposing to revoke fixed links licenses in some areas and to make a combination of citywide and local licenses available in the 26 GHz band. Ofcom has also set out a range of options for the 40 GHz band, including to vary or revoke existing licenses. Ofcom is inviting responses to its short-range device proposals by the 4th of July and the millimetre wave consultation by the 18th of July. You can find the consultation pages on the Ofcom website at www.ofcom.org.uk. The United States Department of Defense will host this year's Armed Forces Day crossband test on Saturday, May 14th. While Armed Forces Day is May 21st, the Armed Forces Day crossband military amateur radio event traditionally takes place one week earlier to avoid conflict with the Dayton Hamvention. The event is open to all radio amateurs. With more details on this year's crossband test, we go to John Ross, KD8IDJ, who reports from League Headquarters. The crossband test is a two-way communications exercise between military and amateur radio stations as authorized by the FCC and the Department of Defense, which establishes the military auxiliary radio system known as MARS. During the exercise, radio amateurs listen for stations on military operating frequencies and transmit on frequencies in adjacent amateur bands. ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio, has promoted the participation of military and amateur radio stations in the Armed Forces Day event for more than 50 years. There are 24 military stations registered this year across the United States, including Alaska and Hawaii, that will be participating in the 2022 event. Several of those stations will be using the 60-meter interoperative channels during the exercise. All operations will be on a not-to-interfere basis in case there are real-world missions being supported during the event time frame. A detailed list of modes and frequencies for military government stations taking part in the Armed Forces Day crossband test and more information is available at www.dodmars.org. In the upper right-hand corner is a drop-down menu with all of the information, including how to obtain a QSL card. In the August 1950 issue of ARRL's membership journal QST, it was noted that 232 persons made perfect copy of the Greetings to Amateurs broadcast at 25 words per minute over 13 military frequencies and have received a Certificate of Merit signed by the Secretary of Defense, the Honorable Lewis Johnson. There are 24 military stations registered across the United States, including Alaska and Hawaii, that will be participating in the 2022 event. Several of those stations will be using the 60-meter interoperative channels during this exercise. All operations will be on a not-to-interfere basis, in case there are real-world missions being supported during the event timeframe.
An Armed Forces Day Secretary of Defense message will also be sent in CW and RTTY, and an Armed Forces Day message will also be transmitted utilizing the military standard serial PSK waveform M110, followed by mill standard wide shift FSK, 850Hz RTTY, as described in mill standard 188-110A stroke B. Complete the request form to obtain a QSL card at www.usarmymars.org. We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, available as a direct download on our website at www.twiar.net. InterestingEngineering.com has published an article about 18-year-old American radio amateur Dhruv Reba, Kilo Charlie 9, Zulu Juliet X-Ray, who hopes to develop a program that will enable youth to build and program microsatellites. When Reba was nine, he received his ham radio technician license, becoming the youngest person of Indian origin, until then, to receive the same. The same year, he attained the general class license. A senior specializing in computer science at Normal Community High School in Bloomington, Illinois, Reba firmly believes that getting into amateur radio was a stepping stone to various other fields, the space industry, for example. In 2017, Reba was part of the Amateur Radio on the International Space Station project. It involves amateur radio operators across the world speaking directly to astronauts and cosmonauts through their handheld, mobile or home radio stations. Reba found out about the program at the Hamvention and thought it would be interesting to get his school involved in the project. After three tries, he received approval. As he had an amateur radio license, he was able to make the initial contact. Some 16 students were given the chance to ask 23 questions to astronaut Joseph M. Asaba on the International Space Station during Expedition 5354. Two years later, in 2019, Dhruv Reba was named Young Ham of the Year. Currently, he is the lead of a statewide program called 4-H in Space Mission Command. He's been working with Illinois 4-H, the Laboratory for Advanced Space Systems at Illinois, and the University of Illinois Department of Aerospace to develop a program that will enable young people to build and program microsatellites that will be launched into orbit. You can find out more by reading the article at interestingengineering.com. To help with emergency communications support following an outbreak of tornadoes that hit this past week, the Oklahoma Department of Emergency of Management and Homeland Security requested support from the Oklahoma Amateur Radio Emergency Service. During the first week of May, 12 tornadoes touched down in the central and eastern parts of Oklahoma. The tornado that struck Seminole, Oklahoma on Wednesday, May 4th, left EF2 damage according to the National Weather Service. That tornado was a mile wide and its path totaled 31 miles. The request for amateur radio emergency communications support from the Oklahoma Aries was made on Thursday, May 5, 2022. Aries was activated on Saturday, May 7, 2022. 
Seven amateur radio operators were active, providing voice communications between chainsaw and debris removal teams from their base at Seminole State College's Volunteer Center. ARRL Oklahoma Section Emergency Coordinator Mark Conklin, N7XYO, said the cleanup crews worked quickly and Ares was needed for eight hours until cellular and wired communications were restored. There were no deaths or injuries during the tornado outbreak, but the cleanup efforts continue. WX4NHC, the amateur radio station at the National Hurricane Center in Miami, Florida, will hold its annual communications test on Saturday, May 28, 2022, from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, or 1300 to 2100 UTC. With more details on this year's test, we go to John Ross, KD8IDJ who files this report from League Headquarters in Newington. That event is designed to evaluate W4NHC's amateur radio equipment and antennas at the headquarters in Florida and to give operations and a, an opportunity to evaluate their home equipment in advance of this year's Atlantic Hurricane season, which starts on June 1st and runs through November 30th. This event allows ham radio operators worldwide to hone their amateur radio communication skills in times of severe weather. Brief contacts will be available on many frequencies and modes, as well as the exchange of signal reports and basic weather data with any station in any location. The National Hurricane Watch Net on 14.325 MHz will be active for most of the test, as will 7.268 MHz, depending on propagation. Depending on man-made noise, the uh, may have to move to different frequencies, and participants can locate the net using one of the DX spotting networks, such as the DX Summit website at www.dxsummit.fi. There will also be a voice-over-internet protocol hurricane net from 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. WX4NHC will make a few contacts on local VHF and UHF repeaters, as well as on Florida statewide amateur radio network, SARNET. On May 10, 2022, radio amateurs in Puerto Rico celebrated 25 years of Dia del Radio Aficionado, or Puerto Rico Amateur Radio Operator Day. The day was designated the second Tuesday in May by Law 50 of June 7, 1996. The governor of Puerto Rico, Pedro Perlisi, issued a proclamation to honor the event. Radio amateurs took to social media and the airwaves to celebrate and send good wishes. A special message was sent to amateurs by the Puerto Rico Broadcasters Association. This year, 2022, is also the centennial of radio station WKAQ, which went on the air on December 3rd, 1922. Radio amateurs were among the radio pioneers who helped get the station on the air. The Federation de Radio Aficionados de Puerto Rico developed a special event net to celebrate the day, offering an electronic certificate of participation. Many stations from other countries connected by Echolink to participate in the event. Brazil took an important step in the containment of solar panel RFI by adopting new regulations and requirements that took effect on 2nd of May. With more details on the story, we go to Steve Richards, who files this report through the Southgate News Service. Solar panel installations can cause considerable RF pollution. In Brazil, the National Institute of Metrology, Standardization and Industrial Quality, known as INMETRO, has introduced new regulations to tackle this growing problem. 
On March the 21st, 2022, InMetro published an ordinance which established the technical regulations and compliance assessment requirements for equipment for generating, conditioning and storing electricity in photovoltaic systems. It came into effect on May the 2nd, with the regulations for the production, import and marketing of certain products phased in over 12 to 36 months. In photovoltaic systems, the natural conversion of energy required to store and transform the direct current obtained from solar panels to that used in the alternating current electrical network typically requires current chopping techniques, so radio interference can be generated by the physics involved in these conversions. The Brazilian National Amateur Radio Society, LABRE, through its Spectrum Management and Defence Group, has been active since the beginning of this long technical and regulatory process to raise awareness and bring potential interference issues to the attention of the federal government. LABRE participated in public consultations and took part in a large in-metro technical committee formed to listen to different sectors of society, industry, commerce, laboratories and government, to prepare suggestions aimed at revising the technical regulation of photovoltaic systems. Later, within this committee, focus groups were formed, including electromagnetic compatibility, to discuss their specific topics. Labre also had the support of the EMC coordinators of the International Amateur Radio Union and America's national body, the Amateur Radio Relay League, throughout these meetings. During discussions in the technical committee, Labre pushed for the full application of electromagnetic compatibility rules for all photovoltaic products and systems capable of generating interference. And so InMetro decided to include electromagnetic compatibility for the first time in a specialised regulation on photovoltaic systems, targeting the products which would follow this and other requirements in a more detailed and fractional regulation model. At the same time, InMetro stressed that products that are not included in the current scope or those that come to integrate with photovoltaic systems may be addressed in future regulatory processes. In summary, thanks to the work of the EMC focus group in which Labre actively participated, InMetro understood the importance of radio interference in this topic. The fact that they've now incorporated electromagnetic compatibility requirements into the regulation, which wasn't even taken into account in their 2011 consultation, can all be considered as an effective advance in the protection of radio communications in Brazil against interference generated by photovoltaic systems. A statement in English translation on the Labray website praises the new regulation which exceeds the language of its 2001 version by providing this kind of RFI protection for the first time. In translation into English, Labray praised the measure, calling it an effective advance in the protection of radio communications in Brazil against interference generated by photovoltaic systems. You are listening to North America's premier news and information service for the amateur radio hobbyist. We are This Week in Amateur Radio. The Radio Society of Great Britain has relaunched its Beyond Exams Club scheme as Brickworks. 
Brickworks is a scheme run by local amateur radio clubs that have committed to helping all licensed amateur radio operators discover more about what the hobby has to offer. It was originally launched in early 2020 by the RSGB under the name of the Beyond Exams Club Scheme. When Covid struck, clubs were no longer able to meet in person and it was harder to help radio amateurs to work through the club scheme activities. Now that life is opening up again, the RSGB is delighted that Brickworks, as it's now being called, is being relaunched. Whether you are a new licensee, returning to amateur radio or want to try something new, Brickworks has something to offer you. If you're already a Beyond Exams Club Scheme accredited club, you do not need to re-register. For more information, see the Society's website, www.rsgb.org forward slash Brickworks. And now, with his segment on tower climbing and antenna safety, here is Arizona's own Greg Stoddard, KF9MP. One question I got via email concerning tower-mounted electronics and where to start. Here's what I did on my latest 900 megahertz install. Concerning feed lines, I used the 900 megahertz band for a one-way link between my recording studio at home and the local repeater for airing this week in amateur radio. Feed line loss at 900 megahertz is horrible unless you intend to spend lots of money on pressurized semi-rigid feed line. One solution to this problem is to mount the electronics on the tower and limit the feed line to say two or three feet. It's easy to run 115 volts AC up the tower. Make sure the wires you choose to install are the outdoor type with three wires. Also check with the tower owner to be sure it's legal to do so. Probably any lighted or registered tower would require you to, to run the power wires through conduit. Actually, running conduit on the tower is rather easily since it's generally in a straight line. Okay, so you've installed the power to the place where you intend to mount the electronics and antenna. Your next job is to find a suitable cabinet. If your space requirements are small, like the size of a small HF rig, you're in luck. For those needing to obtain and tower mount a larger cabinet, here's how I handled a couple of those projects. First, we gathered all the equipment to be put in the cabinet on the tower and arranged it to take up minimal space but allow sufficient cooling airflow. Then we located a cabinet that came close to the size and height and width. I took it to a local welding shop and had them cut all the way around the outside, splicing five inches of steel to make it deeper. After the bill was paid, I sealed it with silicone and paint and tested it with a water hose for a watertight seal. I did install two drain holes in the bottom just in case. For smaller projects, marine battery cases work well for housing tower-mounted electronics. You'll need a mounting bracket of some sort and some holes in the box, but they're cheap and durable. Hamfests are good places to look to pick up plastic boxes for outside mounting. I found several with molded-in nuts for mounting, clear plastic doors with key locks for real cheap, my favorite two words. Some common mounting devices for electronics on the tower are hose clamps, antenna U-bolts, most brass screws and nuts, as well as custom-made brackets from scrap steel. If you live in an area with a large industrial area, try to get to know someone that works as an industrial electrician who can help you scrounge old steel electrical cabinets, scrap steel, wire, and other hardware. Most of my best outdoor installations were made from old control cabinets destined for the scrap steel bin or the landfill. And while you're building your tower-mounted box, be sure to consider how to safely put it on the tower and gain access to it. Remember, money spent on books and videos relating to tower safety is always money well spent. Invest in your safety soon. Don't be a statistic. This is Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, reporting for This Week in Amateur Radio. 
And finally this week, in the age of the internet, almost anyone can talk to people from all over the world. But most of us use technologies like cell phones and Wi-Fi without much understanding of how they work. Members of the K7UAZ Amateur Radio Club at the University of Arizona meet several times a month to learn about the ins and outs of wireless communication and to connect with like-minded people across the world. What I like about the nature of amateur radio is taking ownership and understanding how wireless communication works day-to-day, said Sarah Lee, a molecular and cellular biology major who is in the process of changing her major to systems engineering. It's easy to just take advantage of it like, oh, of course I can just call someone, or of course I can use the map app on my phone. But this is about building an understanding of the world around you and how it works. Another highlight for Lee, and for other club members, is the chance to connect with such a tight-knit global community. Because amateur radio enthusiasts share an interest in the communication medium itself, they know they'll have something in common with every person they connect with. One of the events Lee enjoyed most was participating in the North American CUSO Party and Collegiate Championship, in which teams used a digital communication mode called Radio Teletype, or RTTY, to make as many contacts as possible in a 12-hour period. For the past few years, the group has been upgrading radios and transmission lines for the antennas they use to communicate, including replacing safety wires securing the antenna tower. But they took a major step forward this month when they raised a 15-foot by 30-foot, 60-pound antenna onto the roof of the old engineering building. We had antennas up there that were probably 20 or 25 years old, said Kurt Laumann, a research engineer and technology programs advocate in the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering who manages the club. It was a nice mix of teamwork. The old antennas could communicate only at 14 and 21 megahertz, while the new one can communicate anywhere between 14 and 50 megahertz. Club Vice President Hilliard Page, a systems engineering major with a minor in aerospace engineering, explained that this will open up new communications opportunities for the club. For example, they now have the ability to bounce signals off the trails of meteors. We wanted an amazing new antenna, so the next 20 years of students who come into the club can really spread their wings a lot and experiment and talk with people around the world, he said, adding that the opportunity for constant learning is a key part of the club's mission. We're really different in that our main goal is to educate and to teach people about radios and also help the community. Lee said one reason she joined the club was to gain knowledge about a technical topic. The Learning First mission of K7UAZ made it a perfect choice for her and for others interested in learning more about wireless communications. Anyone can join and learn about how to make voice, digital, or Morse code contacts with radio enthusiasts all over the world. Page said one of the most interesting experiences he's had with the club is using radios to look for a lost satellite. This is one of the only clubs you can join where we can just take you in if you have no knowledge and teach you what you're passionate about, Page said. Also, it's a fantastic way to network. I've received two internship offers and even a job offer one year out for after I graduate, he said. This Week in Amateur Radio is holding open auditions for news anchors for the weekly national worldwide amateur radio news service. If you have a good radio voice and can reliably read provided news copy, we are looking for you. This, of course, is an all-volunteer position, and amateur radio license is not required. You must have a high-quality microphone, headset mics are not used, and be familiar with audio editing software to record and edit your finished news stories before uploading. If you would like to try out for a weekly or bi-weekly anchor position with North America's premier amateur radio news on-air and podcast, please send an email to our producer, George, W2XBS. You can include a sample MP3 of yourself reading news copies sent as an attachment to... 
W2XBS77 at gmail.com. That's whiskey, the number two, X-Ray Bravo Sierra 77 at gmail.com. Be sure and use Anchor Audition in the subject line. Please include your phone number and a good window of time for a callback to discuss your submission and our operating logistics to see if This Week in Amateur Radio is a good fit for you. We hope to hear from you soon. This Week in Amateur Radio is heard around the world on amateur radio repeater systems, streaming on the internet, or on great low-power FM broadcast stations like WGXC-FM, part of the Wave Farm on 90.7 MHz in Accra, New York, serving Greene County and the southern regions of New York's Capital District. Many of the news and information items heard on this edition of This Week in Amateur Radio have been provided by the American Radio Relay League, the AWRL Audio News Service, and the AWRL Letter, the Southgate Amateur News Service, Steve Richards, G4 Hotel Papa Echo, and the Southgate Vibes News Service, AMSAT, the Radio Amateurs of Canada, the FCC, the Radio Society of Great Britain, and Ofcom, the South African Radio League, the International Amateur Radio Union, the Wireless Institute of Australia, and the Australian Communications and Media Authority, the New Zealand Association of Radio Transmitters, the Amateur Radio Newsline, the Rain Hamcast, Eric Guth, 4Z1UG and QSO Today, QRZ.com, the Tech Guy, Leo Laporte, the International Telecommunications Union, and various news sources on the Internet. With special thanks to all our weekly news sources and to you, our listeners, that wraps up this edition of This Week in Amateur Radio. If you would like to write to us, you can find everything you need, including archive editions of the news service at our website at twiar.net. And now for all of us at This Week in Amateur Radio headquarters and all our news team around the world, this is Will Rogers, K5WLR in Fayetteville, Arkansas, wishing you 73.